0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Time's Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two day event at the University of Wisconsin Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about the big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, a conversation with Joaquin and Julian Castro. The Castro brothers have long been described as rising stars in the Democratic Party. Julian is the former mayor of San Antonio and previously served under the Barack Obama administration as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He's also currently running for president. Joaquin is in the middle of his fourth term in Congress, where he serves on the House Intelligence Committee. In their interview with Washington Post associate editor David Marinus, the two brothers talk about their childhood, the politics of Texas, their home state, and where things stand in the 2020 primaries. All right, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the talk.
2: Thank you again, everybody. Julian and Joaquin are identical twins.
0: You can tell which one of us is running for president these days. Yeah. Uh, nobody, wants me, won't, nobody wants him to drop out more than I do because I want to be able to <laughs> shave this beard off. How about your
2: wife? Same thing. Uh, they were born on September 16th, 1974. Uh, Mexican Independence Day.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
2: uh they'll probably celebrate down in san antonio in a couple of days so we so this isn't san antonio but happy birthday to both of you from madison thank you. wisconsin thank you, David.
0: thank you very much
2: thank y'all so i i'm gonna this is just gonna be a conversation and um sort of split it into two parts uh a lot about politics and policy and then also about The forces that shape them, who they are and why they are the way they are, which is sort of my obsession as a biographer, and I think is an important part of understanding what Julian, running for president, believes in and why he does, and Joaquin, as a member of the House Intelligence Committee, a member of Congress, uh, both devoted to public service, why that is um, and the roots from which they came. you know, Julian hasn't been doing much the last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's heard about him. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think the best thing to do is to get the elephant out of the room right away. Um, so let's deal some, a little bit uh, about what happened at that debate. I, I sort of break it down into two categories. One is style and one is substance. And... Your argument with Uncle Joe sort of upset the chattering class in DC and perhaps some people in this audience, to be truthful, because of the style. Mm. Um, But what you were trying to do is make a substantive argument. So let's deal with the substance of what you were saying first.
0: Yeah, well first of all, thank you David for the question and for uh, moderating. Thank you to everybody here. Uh, at the university and in Madison. This is Joaquin's first time in Wisconsin. Uh, this is what I've uh, never this. been here before. <laughs> Thank you. In Madison, it looks like a very beautiful city. Thank, Thank you me. all for having us here. Thank, Thank you, me. David, for inviting us too. Absolutely. But yeah, so we had our debate on Thursday night and um, one of the points that that I made during the debate was that we have a difference in, in approach on health care um, because you know, I want to make sure that if we're going to go through the difficult process of transitioning our health care system. Uh, y'all remember, of course, that there were seven presidents before Barack Obama that actually tried to achieve some form of universal health care. Obviously, the ACA was accomplished in 2010, but not without... Uh, a political price to pay for that and a lot of turmoil after that. The Tea Party and everything that happened in 2010, 2014, and so forth. So, you know, I believe that if we're going to do that again, and we should do it, that we need to make sure that everybody is covered this time. Like, that's, it has to be universal health care coverage for everyone. And that we should build it off of a Medicare system um, that would be this, this, uh, Medicare would be default so you could have a private health insurance plan, under my approach, if you wanted to, um, but somebody who's unemployed, somebody who's just born, uh, somebody who is poor, they automatically, without, without any questions asked, would become part of this plan. And uh, in the last debate, Senator Harris had asked uh, uh, Vice President Biden about the fact that his plan would leave 10 million people uncovered. So I started that conversation on the stage and... Um, he had said that some people would have to buy in if you lost your job, you would have to buy in, and so I picked up on that and i said look that 's right. The fact that you have to buy in means that people are going to be uncovered uh the you know He said no that they wouldn 't have to buy in. I said yes, you know." And that was the argument. Unfortunately, the news media picked up on, as you say, the style instead of Don't you of the remember sun, what you said two minutes it, ago? Which times. was directly related to the fact that he had denied saying a phrase that he used, you know, two minutes ago. Um, I, I should say, and I've said in the time since then, and I've said for a long time, you know, the vice president and I know each other. We served in the administration. It was not a personal thing. You know, I have tremendous respect for him. But I do have a difference with the approach on healthcare because I think if we're going to change our healthcare system, we need to do it to to a plan that covers everybody. And that was my point. And I'm going to fight for that, you know, no matter what. Like when I get up on that stage, on that debate stage, I want the American people to know what I'm fighting for and that I'm fighting for them. And so ultimately it's not about Joe Biden or Julian Castro. It's about what we do for the American people. And my plan would cover everybody. That was the point I was trying to make.
2: You know, it was a debate... And debaters are supposed to debate. It wasn't a forum. So in that sense, the give and take is is what should be part of it. But on the other hand, you have an audience of Democratic voters who are thinking, we just want to be Trump. We don't want these guys. Well, and I think this is an important point,
0: because um, I hope that folks have seen in these three debates, in terms of what I've done on the stage, that I'm going to get up on the stage, and I'm there to debate. I'm there to win that debate, and if I get up on the stage in October of 2020 against Donald Trump, I'm going to win against him. We need a nominee that can go up against Trump and come out of there and prove their point and win on that debate stage, and he's not going to be nice, right? (laughs) He's not going to be an easy debater to take on. Uh, He's going to try and do everything that he can to, to, uh, you know, smear the person that's on the stage. I've been very respectful but I also make my point effectively, Uh, and I think that I've been the most effective debater out of everybody on that stage in each of the three debates, and I'm looking forward to the one in October to do it again. And I want you to know that he says worse things to me every single day. (laughs) That is true, that is true.
2: I was gonna save this for later, but um, when these two identical twins were young, they used to fight with each other in what they called the Constantly infinity yeah. death match. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was easier yeah. To I mean, we <laughs> would like we didn't want to hit each other in the face. Well, then so, our parents
0: would know that we were fighting, right? So we would spend an hour taking turns hitting each other as hard as we could, like on the shoulder or somewhere else, uh, because you know we were going at it. But uh, I guess although you did get about what. Uh, Stitches twice. Because I did. Crazy. Yeah, he, this guy <laughs> threw me off the bed when we were two. He pushed me into window guards. The edge of a window guard that ripped open the back it of my head look when I was now. nine. I had to get stitches for that too. I, mean, I have a trail of stitches that, because of him. Yeah.
2: So Joaquin wins the fights. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes. But I'm the one running for president. Yes. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Julián is, what, one minute older? I'm a minute older, That yeah. makes all the difference. <laughs> He's been battle-tested by me. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think the best interview I've read with you was the one by Ezra Klein in Vox uh, recently. Oh, the podcast. The podcast, yeah. yes. Yeah. Where, you yeah. know, the whole, the concept of a quiet, moral radicalism, sort of, that, yeah. I think that was his phrase, but it was a way to shape you know, the the issues that you think are the most important and the way to present them to the public. And of course at the start of that is is immigration. Um you've both dealt with that a lot. Joaquin, you know, you've been down to the to the border many times and you know, we haven't. No one maybe a few people in this room have, but what what, what is that experience like to go down there and see what, what they're doing with the kids?
0: <clears throat> um I, I mean, it's incredible. Um, when you go into, you know, in terms of our immigration system, there are different holding facilities. Uh, for example, there are border processing centers. There are uh, ICE facilities that hold adults. There are um, HHS facilities, Health and Human Services facilities, uh, that hold children. and. So I've now, by now, seen all of them, right, visited each of those kinds of places. And honestly, uh, I don't think that any American who visited a, a CBP processing center and witnessed how immigrants or migrants are treated there would be proud of how our country is treating people. And I released video that I took in El Paso a few months ago of a group of 20 Cuban women who had been in this border patrol cell, some of them for 15 days, not able to take a shower or bath. There was a woman there who said that uh, she was epileptic, I believe, and had not been given her medicine. And the conditions there are, are just just terrible. Uh, there was a toilet, it's a contraption, that's a toilet and a sink. And when we went in there, the water wasn't running. There was no running water there. And you got about 12 or 15 of these women who were in the same room. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing is trying to make sure that our government is treating people in a humane way. The president has made, this, has made those folks his number one punching bag in politics. Really, you think about it, he made his career in politics off of demonizing immigrants and so our work has been very intense, um, and uh, you know, just very involved on a day-to-day basis.
2: Julian, you know, I, I'm sure there are, almost everyone in this audience feels guilty about it. Like, what can we do? You know, this is like, is this Germany in 19 you know 35 or something, and this horror is happening in our own country. What can you tell them? What can they do? Well, I mean, I would say I'm
0: I'm actually very proud of a lot of what Americans have done. All of the uh, protests that we've seen, um, the organizing around this, obviously what happened in 2018 and electing a Democratic House, uh, a lot of candidates who have a very different vision on immigration than this president. Uh, I also know that A lot of lawyers, for instance, have gone to these centers and they've dedicated pro bono hours to represent people in immigration proceedings. They've come from throughout the nation, like all over the nation, thousands and thousands of lawyers. Uh, So I'm very proud of that. I think what people can do is there are different ways to to be helpful, I think, to use their voice, even if it's just on social media and with their friends and family, and, and to talk about the importance of a different way to treat people, different policies on immigration. Also, obviously, the way people vote is the most important thing, and to get people out to vote, because we absolutely, no matter what happens in 2020, have to defeat Donald Trump so that we're going to have a different uh, president. And then people also have found organizations that are directly helping migrants, uh, like Raices, Catholic Charities, a number of others on the border and border communities that they research, and you know, if they feel comfortable, they've made donations to uh, nonprofits that have good reputations. So those are some of the ways that people, I think, can help and are helping.
2: You know, the whole in the whole Trump policy of fear. One of the fears they have is open borders, and you've called for decriminalizing the border, and they make that sound like it's open borders. Yeah. Can you explain what that's all about? What the difference is, and what you why you believe that should yeah, be decriminalized?
0: Um, so, you know, in my vision of things, it, when somebody crosses the border without permission, it would still be against the law. It would just be enforced in a civil process and not a criminal one. The, what this administration has done is that they've taken a section of the law called Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act that um, came along in the late 1920s by a segregationist senator, Senator Blease, who openly advocated lynching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this law was not, basically not enforced for 60 years until post 9-11, and then it started ratcheting up. When Trump took over, Trump supercharged that, and he started weaponizing Section 1325, which makes it a misdemeanor if you cross the border. It's a misdemeanor, not a felony, but a misdemeanor. Um, But he used that to incarcerate migrant parents and to separate them from their little children. And what I've said is that I wanna end those family separations. And because this is a law that for a long time was there but was not even used, that we don't need that law um, to enforce accountability in our our immigration system. But if we can take it out, we can remove a tool that a future administration that is Trump-like would have to do what he has done, and um, you know of course Republicans are going to suggest that no matter who the Democrat is, that that Democrat is for open borders, I think most Americans don't you know because most americans right don't we don't have Uh, direct experience with the deportation process the immigration court process don't realize that that is actually a civil process that's not normally a criminal process (laughs) if you're up for deportation or you have an asylum claim so you can maintain accountability there but take away that tool that this president has used to separate children from their families
2: Joaquin, you were instrumental in uh, legislation to overturn the Emergency Act for yeah. the wall in um, that past. Yeah, no, it was, and, it was it, Donald
0: Trump's first veto, actually, uh, several months ago now. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically issued an executive order, or I'm sorry, he issued an emergency declaration uh, to take money from the military and other pots that had not been appropriated for, by the Congress. In other words, the Congress which has the constitutional power of appropriating money, had not appropriated all this money towards a border wall. So as president, he took from different pots of money and said, we're going to use this for border wall. So I filed legislation to negate his emergency declaration. And we passed it uh, with flying colors through the House of Representatives. I think we got like 59 votes yep. in the Senate. So we passed it through the Senate, but we could not overcome his veto. Uh, so it was vetoed by the president, and and so there he is. They're raiding uh, military funding for different housing projects on military bases and other things uh, to to basically build a wall right now.
2: Most of the people who support the wall live hundreds and hundreds of or thousands of miles away, right? And you you guys in San Antonio are not right at the border, but you're close enough to know that the give and take of what goes on at the border. What does the wall do?
0: I don't think that it does much, actually. Uh, I think it's mostly symbolic for the president and it's become part of political symbolism for him. And, you know, like I said, that's what he's built his campaign around. Um, and uh, there's been a lot, of, a lot of fear-mongering and scapegoating that's gone on. And fortunately, those of us who are closer to the border, certainly border representatives, in towns like Laredo and and El Paso, you know, in in places in Arizona, and California, San Diego, have spoken up about the misinformation that's put out there about border communities and about immigrants. And, you know, these are some of the safest cities in the United States, uh, and yet, you know, they are cast as dangerous places in order to support something like a border wall.
2: The more this goes on, the more apparent it becomes that it's not. And by the way, you also want to get rid of the le- the terminology, right? Of illegal aliens. Yeah. And
0: I, yeah. I had filed legislation to change that. I mean, I think that it's a dehumanizing term. Uh, yeah. That when if you if you see the word illegal alien, you think about it. It's never used in a positive way, right? You never hear people say, "Oh, that's a great illegal alien that I saw." You know, <laughs> I'm friends with that wonderful illegal alien. Uh, it's used in a very pulverizing way, and throughout the history of the United States, there have been instances where, and, and I guess let me clarify, because when I, when I did this legislation, I got emails and phone calls saying, you can't stop me from saying illegal alien. <laughs> right. I said, I'm not trying to stop anybody from saying anything, right? Like, that's part of free speech, but the issue is, how does the United States government describe an individual not how does Joe Smith, who lives in Texas or Wisconsin and chooses to describe whoever they want, how does our U.S. government describe individuals? And over the course of our history, we have moved away from pejorative dehumanizing terms like that in other contexts, and I believe that we should move away from illegal alien, and you know whether it's undocumented person or whatever it is that we use, <coughs> uh, undocumented foreign national, describe people in a way that says that just because you cross a border doesn't make you less human.
2: So, but it's becoming more apparent that the Trump, you know, Miller and all the the people who are doing this policy, really, it's not just undocumented people that they're after, but legal immigrants and refugees. And another yeah. part of your moral uh, campaign has to deal with bringing in more legal immigrants and, and more refugees. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I, I believe that, that um, the United States should allow in more refugees than we're allowing now. At the high point of the Obama administration, it reached uh, about 110,000. Uh, right now, I think we're around 30,000, between 30,000 and 40,000. And they've also taken other steps uh, to make it more difficult for people to actually become citizens through the legal process uh, in different ways. They've done that. You, know, you may have uh, seen the public charge rule that they they tried to get through, or they're pursuing right. Uh, essentially, that if people rely on any kind of assistance, right, that they would that would foreclose their opportunity. To become a citizen, um, changing the way that we evaluate who can apply for citizenship and actually become a citizen in this country, and trying to get the number of refugees that we take in to go under thirty thousand, down to ten thousand, and then eventually to zero. So this isn't just against this isn't just a movement in this administration against undocumented immigrants. It's basically anybody trying to come here. From and you other know, countries. David, and I caught a little bit of heat actually on the left. Um, from folks, because between the period from when Donald Trump was elected president in November of 2016 and before he took office in January of of 2017, I had put a statement on Twitter that said that I thought that if somebody was a legal permanent resident and had the right to petition for citizenship at that point, that they should probably do that before Donald Trump actually took office. And I was criticized by some, including organizations that I love and work with, as scaring people. Mm. You're scaring people, right? And, and I, I didn't argue about it back then. I just said, look, I'm not trying to scare anybody. This is just I just think that they're going to come after not only undocumented folks, their idea is also to, to restrict legal immigration. But what, what Stephen Miller and the White House have tried to do is gone way beyond even what I thought they would back then. I thought that they would go after uh, legal immigrants, but now they've discussed going back and looking at people's citizenship applications and denaturalizing citizens, right? So,
2: yeah, so it's gone far beyond even what I thought they would do. So another part of your uh, enlarging the circle um, has to do with homelessness. You were the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I think one of your first places you went running for president was the tunnels in Las Vegas um, to deal with the homeless there. Madison, as everyone in this room knows, has a homelessness issue. Uh, I don't know whether to call it a problem or not, but no- nobody's nobody here has figured out how to deal with it properly. What is your plan to deal with homelessness, and how can it work?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I saw what we could do on homelessness. Uh, In 2010, uh, before I got to the administration, uh, the Obama administration released a blueprint for ending homelessness called Opening Doors. And it set a very bold bold vision to end homelessness uh, beginning with veteran homelessness. And originally it said we want to end veteran homelessness by 2015. Uh, Of course, we did not end veteran homelessness by 2015. But between 2010 and 2016, uh, we reduced it by 47%. And now, why is that? I mean, because Washington worked the way that it should. In Congress, Republicans and Democrats appropriated money for housing choice vouchers so that homeless veterans could get a voucher if they needed it. And HUD had the money, and the VA had the money to administer that program. Uh, the First Lady did the mayor's challenge to end veteran homelessness. And more than 800 local and state officials signed up for that. And then also local communities adopted best practices, like housing first, and something called coordinated entry, and put a lot of effort into driving those numbers down towards zero. So by the time we got out of there, three states and 36 local communities had reached a functional end to veteran homelessness. My plan would invest those kinds of resources and effort and coordination into not only ending veteran homelessness, but family homelessness, chronic homelessness, youth homelessness uh, by 2028. And it's an ambitious plan, but I believe that we could do that, You know that we can still do big things uh, if we get our act together and work together in Washington and we work with local communities and states and pursue policy that actually works and do that with a humility and a respect toward people who are homeless, instead of what I see in this administration, which is they seem to think that if you're poor that something is wrong with you. And I don't believe that. And I believe that in our politics in the Democratic Party that we've spent the last 25 years talking a lot about the middle class, which we should talk about. But I think a lot of times we've forgotten about people who are poor. And in this campaign, I've tried to inject that back into our politics to talk about people who are poor.
2: In your, you know, Julian wrote a book, An Unlikely Journey, uh, and it, it evokes in a, a very vivid way uh, the streets of West San Antonio, including the mangy dogs running around. Right? There were
0: a lot of those, yeah. In <laughs> and, Spanish, it was ronya. They said they had ronya. Yeah. Who's like been mange. to San Antonio? you been? All right. Yeah. <laughs> to the Riverwalk and the Alamo, and yeah. you know, we we beat the Milwaukee Bucks every time we play. <laughs> <at us. laughs> You can tell that he's really trying to win me Wisconsin here, right? Yeah, you, you can tell that I'm not the one running for president. Right?
2: You can tell you, that you don't know Giannis. That Giannis is just great, y'all. Yeah, he's just he's, great. He's amazing. Right? Yeah,
0: maybe, maybe Coach Popovich can pick him up here in a few years. I'm just
2: so, but where I was going is, um, your circle also includes the animal world, which I'd never That's seen right, before in a yeah. presidential campaign. Yeah. How did you come to that, and what, it, what does it entail?
0: Yeah, no, there's a neat story behind it. You know, like other campaigns, we've been putting out our policies over the last several months, right, on uh, obviously immigration, housing, um, how to ensure that working families can prosper, education, I did one on police reform. But the policy that I was excited about that was nowhere on the radar screen of my, my campaign or the folks that do policy was uh, animal welfare. That I kept saying, I have kept saying, like that. Oh, I want to do something on animals. You know how we can better protect animals and wildlife. And, you know, those people are like, oh, what? What are you talking about? You know, was, the hell! This is a presidential campaign. You know, people aren't was even these gonna gonna be campaign aides right here that didn't want to put out the animal welfare. <laughs> Over <No, but> there, <laughs> yeah, a couple, one of them is here. Uh, but I said, like when, when, when I was in San Antonio, and you'll appreciate this, there was a newspaper article when I was a councilman in the San Antonio Express, <clears throat> Express News in 2004 called "Death by the Pound." Mm-hmm. And it was an expose of the fact that San Antonio had one of the highest euthanasia rates for cats and dogs anywhere in the nation. We were euthanizing as many animals as L.A. was, even though L.A. was, you know, a couple of times or three times bigger at the time in San Antonio. And so I became active at that time, and then as mayor, in trying to drive toward a no-kill status at our shelter, which basically means that you have a live release rate of at least 90%. And eventually, we got there in San Antonio. Um, and since then, I've just taken an interest in, in how we can better protect um, not only human beings, but also animals that I, that I think is worth, or is worthy of um, protection and reflects who we are also as a community. So, So, you know, my plan lays out how we would do all of that. And uh, it was very well received. I mean, suffice to say that the the folks on the team that didn't didn't see that were very surprised at the reaction that it got. Uh-huh. And I do have to give her credit because Hillary Clinton did actually have a plan in 2016 uh, on on animal protection. You know, I, I think that what we did was that we we expanded on that, and took it to uh, the next level.
2: When I was with uh, Joaquin a couple of years ago, we were talking about when Texas will turn, (laughs) which is, of course, the conversation that happens every day with you folks and everybody, every Democrat down in Texas. And um, you were pretty pessimistic about that, at least in terms of how many years it would take. Not that it wouldn't happen, but that it was going to take longer than people were thinking. And now you see Texas Monthly writing about Texodus, they call it, you know, the The all all the Congress people leaving. Is it getting closer? Is there momentum to Texas changing? Because when it changes, it's all over, right? Yeah,
0: no, I mean, I think it absolutely is. I mean, you can, in Texas, you feel like people can finally see it on the horizon that the state is going to change. And uh, there are different reasons for that. I mean, Donald Trump is a a part of that reason that there's so many Texans who just don't agree with his values, with his positions, with how he, you know, how he comports himself, all of those things, uh, but also there's been a lot of groundwork in Texas over the last few years in actually registering people to vote and mobilizing people to vote. Texas has traditionally ranks in the bottom three states in terms of voter participation. So you just have a lot of people who, you know, that's why some people say Texas is not a red or a blue state. It's mostly a non-voting state Mm -hmm. Uh, people just aren't going out to vote and you can't rely on campaigns to touch people who are not uh, engaged because campaigns have limited time and resources so they tend to go after the consistent voters they tend to they're making a bet about who's gonna show up to the polls and they're trying to persuade the people that are going to show up to the polls to go vote But what we've seen are these different third-party groups uh, come in there and try to register people and try to mobilize people, and that's finally happening. And i had been saying for years that it's interesting to hear now, like, national folks talk about whether Democrats will compete to win Texas in 2020. Because for years, you know, we were supporting the Texas Democratic Party, supporting candidates like Wendy Davis, Bill White, who was the mayor of Houston that ran in 2010, you know, when Democrats just got killed. But I would tell folks back then, listen, we need to get to about 47 or 48 percent in statewide races, because I think what will happen at that point is that everybody will smell blood and then there will be a lot of resources and attention and energy that come in here to put you over the top.
2: And that's the period that we're in right now in Texas. The process of registering voters goes all the way back to the great Willie uh, Willie Velasquez, Velasquez, who I would hang around with when I was down in Texas when you guys were kids. Um, so he have been trying to do it for a long time. but yeah. he, he was the founder of
0: an organization Southwest. called the Southwest Voter Registration and Education Project in 1974 that registered voters, really a precursor in that state to a lot of the efforts that we have now that are paying off. And you know, the only thing that I would add to Joaquin's point is I think that there are two dynamics at work. One is the dynamic that you always hear about, which is the growth of the Hispanic community. But right now, I think the the most significant one is that you had a lot of people who have moved into Texas over the last fifteen years into the suburbs of Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and just suburbanites in general. It's diversified in those suburbs, and the suburbs of America have turned off to Donald Trump and the Republicans. I mean, think about Reagan Country in Orange County. That's all Democratic now in Congress. In the suburbs of Houston and Dallas, they elected, they defeated two incumbent congressmen and replaced them with uh, with rookie Democrats. So. Those two dynamics, the demographics and that the suburbs have turned on the Republicans, are going to make Texas a competitive state in 2020. Well, you know, and I mentioned, like, all of us, my brother, the other candidates, Democratic candidates running for office, Democratic voters, obviously, we are all trying very hard to make sure that we elect a Democratic president in 2020. Um, But I told Texas Republican members of Congress, I've told a few of them this, if, somehow, Donald Trump is re-elected, that is the worst thing that could happen to the Texas Republican Party. They will lose at least a few statewide offices in 2022. They'll lose the state legislature, I think, by 2024. And I think Ted Cruz will lose the Senate seat in 2024. Yeah. Because if we don't lose the world as well. That's right. If, we, yeah, if the world is not gone by then, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Although he did just say that he wants to run for president again, so he yeah. may well be running That's for right. president. That's right. Yeah, maybe he won't run for re-election. Ted Cruz will be okay. running for president.
2: <laughs> this
0: podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
2: Julian, uh, it was a pretty dynamic moment at the debate also when, when your competitor, Beto, said, yeah, I do want those AR-15s, mm-hmm. right? Um, did that eliminate, I mean, and of course the conventional wisdom was, well, that means he can never run and win in the Senate in Texas. Where is the gun issue and how does Texas relate to that? I know that it has this long yeah, I mean, history, pioneer history and all that. I but. just
0: think there's been a sea change among everyday Americans on this issue. I mean, the conventional wisdom was that, uh, that this was an issue that you couldn't touch, that the NRA was so powerful that it had all this money that, and, and you know, just don't go there basically to politicians. And the thing that I've been happiest to see it, in the midst of so much sadness and grief about what has happened in our country is more and more people in politics, especially Democrats, standing up to the NRA and running fully against their agenda. And so, and some of them have won, some of them have not. But even I think about Andrew Gillum, who ran in Florida, All right, a fantastic candidate. I mean, I was heartbroken that he came within 33,000 votes of becoming the governor. But he was he had taken on the NRA as mayor of Tallahassee, and then he ran on a very much pro-common-sense gun safety legislation agenda and got that close in a state that that sometimes is referred to as the gunshine state. Mm -hmm. In Texas, I see the same change uh, that, especially, again, in the suburbs of those big cities, and then certainly in the cities themselves, you have growing support for common-sense gun safety legislation. So I just believe that we're going to see a shift uh, we're, we're seeing a shift, and that shift is going to continue. And what is your gun policy? Uh, we released it, uh, released this plan to disarm hate that includes a lot of the same uh, common sense gun safety legislation that you heard on the stage the other day. Um, you know, universal background checks, uh, the assault weapons ban, uh, the seven day waiting period, uh, limiting the capacity of magazines. I also would increase the excise tax on guns and ammunition, and take the six to seven hundred million dollars that that would raise annually, and invest that in local gun violence prevention programs. Because I also want to focus on two things that we don't talk enough about, which is the fact that you have, and I think Corey spoke to this the other day on the stage, a lot of the gun violence that happens, you know, is is not only in the mass shooting context. That's not most of it. Most of it happens in our neighborhoods. You know, Joaquin and I grew up in in these neighborhoods where it was not uncommon to hear gunshots in the neighborhood. You know, I remember when we were uh, in our first year of high school. You know, we had to duck down in a car across the street from the school after school because folks were firing, you know, at each other, or at least somebody was firing at, or at somebody least else. One person was, yeah. And uh, you know, obviously that's a scary moment when you're 15 years old. Um, But a lot of it happens there, and so we need to address that. The other thing that we need to address is, and I call for this in my plan, um, the fact that more than half of the deaths uh, by gun are deaths by suicide. And so I connect the dots of that we need to end the distinction between physical healthcare and mental healthcare and invest in mental healthcare. and also do things like these red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders that allow family members or somebody else who sees somebody that might be a harm to themselves or to somebody else to step in and, and get a court order uh, to prevent their access to guns where it's appropriate and where it, that's granted by a judge. So those are the kinds of things that I'm focused on.
2: One thing uh, the audience might not know is that one of you speaks German. Well, I took German I? before you. Yeah. <laughs> You're you're going to give us too much credit. I took Japanese Japanese. in middle
0: school for three years, and he took German.
2: And who knows more of what now? That's a good question. (laughs) I don't know. I think we would both get asked if
0: we had to take tests on that. now.
2: But (laughs) it it, it implied, among other things, that you had a real interest in foreign affairs, and you're on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, it's a key part of your platform. You know, yeah. you, and I was glad yeah, that we got to yeah. talk a little bit finally not in the debate too much, the other though,
0: night. but a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I have a feeling the next one is going to be uh, co-hosted by the New York Times. And I would think with a newspaper involved, in addition to TV, that is not a knock on TV <laughs> journalism. But uh, I think with newspaper journalism involved, you're probably going to get, you know, even a little bit more policy conversation, including foreign policy. Yeah.
2: And what, where do you see the real touch points of foreign policy.
0: Oh, I mean all over. the Number one, that we need to repair the relationships that this president has damaged with our strongest allies. Um, And then then also address these uh, agreements that he has withdrawn from that we should be in, beginning with the Paris Climate Accord and lead again on sustainability, and then also the Iran nuclear agreement uh, you know, that may be tougher to do, to go back toward now, but I believe that it's worth the effort.
2: Um, well, it sounds like he's trying to do his own thing with that, you know, in a bizarre yeah, way. You know, that, but he's yeah. had
0: this Middle East peace plan right. since he got elected or before right, right, no. that Jared Kushner is supposed right. to be working on that is nowhere to be found. So I, I just don't have much hope right. that there's anything there. You know? but, and also, I think, one of the, I think one of the saddest things around the world is because the United States had been such a leader, and in many ways a moral leader, that that the ro- people who are rogue authoritarians and dictators around the world feel like nobody is watching now. They feel like there's no check on their behavior. Uh, so, And it's not just dictators. I mean leaders of countries. You look at what goes on with the Rohingya uh, in Southeast Asia, the Uyghurs in, in China. Um, I think one of the reasons that Bolsonaro in Brazil has not acted faster on the Amazon, uh, what you've seen in Turkey, what you've seen in Hungary, in different places, these folks feel like nobody really is minding the store, and they can do as they wish, either to their populations, to natural resources, or whatever it is. Well, and also that, that this president has just royally uh, screwed up the relationship with uh, dictators like Kim Jong Un right if you think about what he's done is that it's produced no results in three summits and he's elevated the stature of Kim Jong Un well, I mean, and at I the same that, time well, it's more than that like their nuclear program has developed further and there's been no consequence yeah, since they had that summit i mean yeah. you know early on they did something that i actually and i know i think Joaquin and i i also Spoke positively of, which was that they did marshal support I mean, from Iran, yeah. uh, countries to go to go to the UN and to get additional sanctions levied on North Korea, which I thought mm-hmm. was the right approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, he has completely messed up. I think our approach on North Korea, and through doing what he's done in Iran with the Iran nuclear deal, has sent the wrong signal to somebody like Kim Jong Un. Also, which is like, why in the world, if you're Kim Jong Un, would you trust? Donald Trump in the United States. If they just entered an agreement four years ago in 2015 with Iran, and then he just summarily, all of a sudden, when when both parties were, or all parties agreed that Iran was in compliance, he just tore it up. I mean, mean, why as a leader would you say, oh, okay, I'm gonna go run and do a deal with you? Uh, It doesn't make sense. I mean, so haphazard, so erratic. If I had to choose two words to describe this president's foreign policy, whether it's this trade war or dealing with North Korea or in Iran or anywhere else, it would be haphazard and erratic.
2: Speaking of the trade war, um, before you came out here, we had a panel of of great Washington Post reporters, one of whom, Catherine Rampell, is an expert on economics. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't speak for her, but she was sort of uh, bewildered by the, the inability of any of the Democrats on the stage during the debate to make an articulate argument against the tariffs, other than that we will renegotiate as well. How do you answer that, and isn't, isn't free trade part of what this country is about? Yeah,
0: part of the challenge in those debates is that you have like 45 seconds to talk about the whole world, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, yeah, no, that absolutely is, and look, we're from Texas, and so yeah. you know, as you can imagine, Texas has been a hotbed of trade, especially with Mexico, uh, which is one of our biggest trading partners, Um, So, I mean, we live in a global economy, right? Um, I think the point that folks made on stage the other day was, we want to make sure though that when we engage in trade that the biggest beneficiaries are American workers, right? And that we can both do that and also ensure that we come out ahead, that we continue to be a strong part of the global economy. We're gonna engage in trade. Trade does have a beneficial, can have a beneficial impact, and does have a beneficial impact. We just need to maximize the, the positive impact for the United States. And um, you know, we're from San Antonio. San Antonio is where NAFTA was signed. Um, you know, My hope is that they're gonna be able to strengthen some of the labor, the environmental, and the enforcement provisions uh... in that new deal and come up with something that works for workers and for companies right? um, so hopefully they can you know.
2: Joaquin, uh, a lot of people in this room became uh... glued to the television sets for years to the point where they weren't getting any sleep and one of the characters they'd see on tv once in a while was the house intelligence committee chairman when it was the republicans that controlled it, Devin Nunes Oh yeah. you were on that committee What was that bizarro world like from the inside?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said it perfectly. I don't think I need to answer it. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was um, probably for me, like the most poignant time in my public service, because I served 10 years in the state legislature in Texas, and then at that point was in my third term in Congress, where I had a full appreciation as we sat through those multi-dozen interviews that I was really witnessing history uh, on a very consequential issue to our nation. Um, That said, you know, I think that Devin, unfortunately, became he took his his role as chairman and that was subsumed uh, to become a protector of Donald Trump. He ultimately tried to protect Donald Trump, I think, rather than conduct a fair investigation uh, in terms of the Russia investigation. You know, we still, even though, you know, um, we went through the interviews, we obviously had hearings earlier in the year, there's still so many unresolved things, not just with respect to who did wrong and all that, but mostly with respect to protecting the country from foreign interference, either by Russia or anybody else. Again, two quick things. Number one, when we started this investigation, it became clear to me that there was no federal law and i couldn't find a single state law although that may have changed by now that requires any kind of even basic level of cybersecurity protection for our voting systems so there's no law that says to you know bear county my county or travis county in austin or wherever you are that says you've got to have this level of cybersecurity protection in the voting systems that you purchase and use to administer our elections. So that's part of the reason that you see these stories where either in Las Vegas every year, where the the hackers go to try to figure out vulnerabilities in voting systems, or other times where you see that these systems are vulnerable to literally being hacked, uh, to votes being changed, and we still have not addressed that enough. In fact, Mitch McConnell, among the many bills that he's holding up, is holding up a bill that would That would dedicate hundreds of millions of dollars, if not over a billion dollars, to trying to help fix that. The second part is that we're way behind in cyberspace in developing what I would call mutual cyber defense treaties. If you think about what NATO is, NATO for most of its history has been a treaty among nations to defend each other if they are physically attacked, physically intruded upon. Well, what happens to nations when they are intruded upon in cyberspace? The defenses that we've built up to prevent, to prevent those attacks and to act in concert when we and our allies are attacked, those have not been fully developed yet. NATO does have a cyber defense component, but in my estimation, it's way underdeveloped. So those are two things, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy, that we absolutely need to be working on and that we're way behind on.
2: And we're behind because of who controls the Senate.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, Yeah, that's, that is a big part of the reason. Who mm-hmm. controls the White House? Who controls the Senate? Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, right now, the only way that you change that is, is by electing a new president. Uh, we got to replace Republican. Mitch McConnell.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. You know, people say, why doesn't Beto go back and run for the Senate? Why didn't either of you run for the Senate?
0: (laughs) He thought about it. My brother, Joaquin, thought about it.
2: Yeah, Um, it was a tough decision for
0: me um, this last time against Cornyn in Texas. And um, in thinking about it, you know, I served 16 years in the deep minority party first in the legislature and then in the Congress. And I already have, for me at least, what I would consider a pretty powerful platform to try to influence policy and the issues that I care about, both within the Congress and then if it means going on television or talking to reporters about different stories on issues that I care about. So my, I mean, what I was thinking about is, you know, if I'm going to compete and try to move over to the Senate, you know, the Congress has been very gridlocked. Right? That's not a surprise to anybody over the last several years. So I compared the idea of running for Senate to running for governor of Texas, for example. If you're governor of Texas, you can expand Medicaid for a million people in Texas in 10 minutes. Literally, give a million people health care. Or take it minutes. away, as Scott Walker or, did. Or, yeah, you. or be somebody that takes it away, unfortunately. Um, and as I looked at the different positions, not just governor and senator, but I thought, look, I have kind of fought really hard the good fight in the minority party for 16 years. If I'm going to get into a colossal battle in Texas to do something else, right, because I'm already in Congress, then that something else is going to be somewhere where I can make very impactful and meaningful change more immediately uh, and I think more extensively. Uh, And by the way, we have about five or six people that are running for Senate in Texas right it's now as Democrats. Point. Yeah. You got uh, a good a good group, there's a good of, folks group of folks that are, are impressive that are I think can beat John Cornyn. Yeah, in I think I think the Democrat has a very good chance. It's not a guarantee, but has a good chance of beating John Cornyn and being somebody who for the first time in twenty something years as a Democrat will win a seat in Texas in twenty twenty.
2: And Joaquin Castro, governor of Texas in 2022. Yeah,
0: we'll see. Yeah, we'll see.
2: (laughs) You know, when you look at their resume, uh, Stanford, Harvard Law School, a blue blood law firm, White House intern, Mm -hmm. uh, people didn't know you would say, you know, they're from the elite. Far (laughs) from it. And uh, I want to go through, you know, the, the... The generational life story that brought you to to where you are today. Um, The way you write the origin story, Julian, sort of starts in 1922 with your mamo. Mm -hmm. What happened?
0: Well, you know, we grew up with our grandmother and our mom uh, after our parents split up when we were eight, but our grandmother that we called mamo, that was like her nickname, uh, she had come over in 1922 from northern Mexico with her little sister when she was seven because their parents had died and the closest relatives that they had lived in San Antonio. And so uh, you know, she grew up with one part of the family, her little sister grew up with another part of the family. A few years after my grandmother got to San Antonio, the, the woman that was part of the family, that was the mom, also passed away. Uh, and so my grandmother had a, you know, a very heartbreaking beginning to her life. Um, she got pulled out of school when she was in third or fourth grade, so she never got a real education and ended up working as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter for her entire career. Uh, raised my mom as a single parent. My, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was never a part of my mom's life. Uh, and so my mother uh, became the first to be able to graduate from high school, and then she actually went on to college. She became a a hellraiser when she was young, uh, joined the young Democrats and then uh, the Ras Party. Maria
2: no, del Rosario, right? Yeah. Rosie. Yeah, yes. Rosie is how everybody right, knows right, her down right. there. Yeah.
0: But, um, she, you know, she belonged to this third party that at the time was saying that neither the Republican nor Democratic Party was serving the needs of Hispanics in Texas and other places. And so they wanted to see some progress there. Uh, so... You know, when then we came along and we would get dragged to speeches and rallies and three hour organizational meetings. And um, you know, when after we were born, my mother was not quite as involved as she had been before. She had run for city council and lost when she was 23 and, and been the chairwoman for that party in our the county that we grew up in. Um, But still, she remained somewhat active and that's what we saw and that's what inspired us along the way to think about politics and public service as something that is good because so many people grow up with, I think, a very cynical view of politicians and of politics. You know, they're all crooks or for what? And we used to think that. I think when we were teenagers, like, you know, why the hell do you want to do this? Like, it didn't seem like people, you see a lot of people talking, but you don't really see much progress in front of you. But ultimately, what she gave us was this strong sense of that you needed to participate to do something and to do something for other people even as you, you know, even as we succeed ourselves. She also was a wonderful mother, is a wonderful mother, and now grandmother, you know, um, just made sure that we got a good education. Uh, Always, she was the kind of mom that now, you know, I'm a dad and he's a dad. And so we kind of see, see, see it with, you know, clearer eyes, fuller eyes. Like if she was on the phone and we walked into the room, you know, how as a parent, sometimes you say, oh, like, you know, like go to the other room or, Shh, you know, to your kid, like, I never remember my mother doing that, you know, always like we were always the center of her attention. And uh, so, she, in addition to being like this fiery activist when she was young, she also had the patience and the uh, the love um, to be a wonderful mother under stressful circumstances.
2: And you were almost always there with her, taking buses for an hour and a half to get <laughs> yeah, to yeah. her classes yeah. or to her job. Or,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean, you know, it's been um, when my grandmother got to Texas in 1922 there were still signs uh, over some of the establishments in Texas that said, no dogs, Negroes, or Mexicans allowed. And when my mom was born in 1947, of course, the, the country was still uh, segregated. And so my mom, in a lot, of her, you know, a lot of her passion and a lot of her energy and her decision to become active in politics, in grassroots politics in the 1960s, Uh, A lot of that, I think, had to do with how she saw my grandmother treated. Uh, Quite honestly, I think a lot of resentment from her in having experienced that. Um, And also the time that she was, as a baby boomer, you know, she graduated from high school, I think, in 1965, and all of the activism of the time. But it's interesting because our parents were together until we were eight years old, and uh, my my mom met my dad because they were very both active in the community and in politics. But my dad burned out of politics. Like my dad, he, he, you know, he was very involved for a while and then he just burned out. I think, I, I, haven't, I don't know that I've had a direct conversation with him. Maybe I haven't, I just can't remember. But uh, I think that he maybe became a little cynical about it, um, which is not hard to do, right, in American politics. But my mom kept up that activism even till, you know, really since 1965. I mean, just even to today has kept it up. Uh, and now myself, you know, having served for, I guess what, I'm in my 17th year, I, I can see now what a, in some way, I mean, I think it's very honorable, but it's also much of a lot of a big trudge, right? Because, you know, they used to say that to be involved in politics, you needed th- thick skin, now, I think that you need Teflon skin. Uh, it's just a very intense thing.
2: Your dad, Jesse Guzman, mm-hmm. a math teacher.
0: Yeah.
2: And why aren't you Joaquin and Julian Guzman? <laughs>
0: to get, well, uh, they, our parents weren't married, yes. they were never married. So on the debate stage the other night, you know, they asked us this question. We didn't know what the last question was right. gonna be because they said you're not gonna get closing statements. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and They asked a question about resilience and professional setback and I started off the answer by saying that, that Castro was my mother's name, is my yes. mother's name and my grandmother's name before her. You know, Castro was my grandmother's name who was unmarried and gave that to my mother who was not married to my dad and gave that to us. And so you know we were raised by these two strong women uh, that made sure that we had so many more opportunities than they ever could have dreamed of. But yeah, that, uh, there's a funny story about that. When my dad registered us for school, when we started kindergarten, he actually put us in as Guzman and Then, my mother switched that back at some point, so. <laughs> although we do have a good relationship with our dad yeah we, we have brown. we have a great relationship yeah. with yeah. our father, and we don't I don't live too far. I've lived like less than a mile from him, and he was he at the debate kids. Yeah. he was there at yeah. the debate but uh but you know it was also it was my mother and my grandmother that were raising us most of the time. One little
2: thing that the Wisconsin people might be interested in is actually one of your mother rosie's First, you could say political action was coming to Wisconsin and Michigan, right, to teach English to migrant workers.
0: Yeah, she was part of a program that came through here, and I and I believe Michigan. So even though Joaquin uh, has a migrant been here, camp. Mom. <laughs> yeah, and you yeah, know, you know, I'm the only one in the family that hasn't <laughs> been here, I know. Uh, and she still talks about that some I think that was that was during her time in college that she. Came yeah, they out. were they were going around and and helping to teach migrant children, I think, and others, uh, how to read, and, and uh, I think giving English classes and so forth, trying to help them.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of sappy when I read, and I have to uh, confess that when I was reading Julian's book, and that moment when you two are out of high school and get on the plane <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. to go to Stanford... I mean, you're you know, tough guys, Infinity Deathmatch, but what happened when you are on that plane together? Yeah,
0: no, so we're, this was the first time that we had ever really been away from home. Uh, I think we left on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1992. And uh, <laughs> we always say that our, our dad had gotten us, like, our dad had bought us the plane tickets on Southwest Airlines, like the cheapest tickets that you could get because it stopped in El Paso. And then San, like, Diego. San Diego, and then yeah. it went into SFO, San Francisco. <laughs> like, that's a cheap ticket, okay? <laughs> but now this is at the time, those of you that are our age or more senior, you'll remember that there was a point at the airports before 9-11.
2: These guys are where, pretending they're old. Yeah, <laughs> oh, We're turning
0: 45, I mean. You know. On Monday, yeah. There was, there, was a, there was a period, right, where before 9-11, where you could go. Anybody could go to the gate. Your whole family could go with you if they wanted, Right. So we had with us, when we were gonna leave to, on that three-legged flight, uh, we, were gonna, we were gonna go to San Francisco, to Stanford. Um, I don't know, maybe there were 10 people that went with us to the gate, right? Yeah. And so we get on the plane, and you know, we're probably not on there 10 minutes before we both start bawling. <laughs> Just bawling. Right. So it was so bad that the Southwest Airlines flight attendant had to come oh, in with, without us asking and give us those Southwest napkins that are hard as hell, like I mean, yeah. basically sandpaper yeah. for your eyes, sandpaper to wipe your tears away. I think we cried halfway to El Paso, you know, our first yeah. leg. But uh, but you know, ultimately, we missed home all the time. We showed up on like October 29th. Uh, so five weeks later without uh, unannounced, we showed up on our mom's doorstep back in San Antonio and she must've been like scared, like, Oh, you guys are dropping out of school or something. But we missed home a lot during that time. And little by little, like anybody in college, right? Or a lot of folks, you start, you know, finding friends and adapting. And by the time we finished our first year, I thought that I think we felt oh. just as comfortable I'll there. You know, as I was, one part of the story you didn't tell is that I almost blew my eardrum out on that flight. Oh, I'll tell you why. Because if you've ever flown when you have a very bad cold and then and then as you start to descend and the pressure is like building up, well, I was crying to El Paso. So for whatever reason, it didn't hurt going to El Paso, going into San Diego SFO. It felt like my ear was going to explode.
2: It was a a very memorable (laughs) flight. (laughs) (laughs) The part of your Stanford experience that struck me as the most resonant was uh, Professor Luis Fraga, mm-hmm. and the you both took him, mm-hmm. and he sort of took you under his wing about minority voting rights, but also had a philosophy that you seemed that seemed one step beyond your mom's in some ways. Would you agree to that? Yeah, that, no.
0: The, he had this. Yeah, you know, well, he taught urban affairs, and then um, uh, also a couple of other classes regarding I think minority voting rights but he, he also talked about this informed public interest and the point of the informed public interest was that in making policy arguments that you should you should appeal to the self-interest of people who might not necessarily at first blush agree with a policy and try and figure out for each of the interest groups like what what would their personal or their self-interest be and to construct policy in a smart way that tries to appeal to people because they can see a value in it for themselves. And, it, you know, it sounds fairly straightforward, but you know, if you think about a lot of the way that policy is, is done and politics is done, you know, we move oftentimes away from that. And uh, it made an impression on us because it really is about reaching beyond only your self-interest or your group self-interest to try and find the, self, the, the interests of different groups and people and bring them into the fold.
2: And as mayor of San Antonio, did you apply those lessons to your education program? Is yeah, that, I, yeah. I,
0: for sure. You know, The thing that I'm most proud of when I was mayor of San Antonio was we did something called Pre-K for SA, which was a ballot initiative to raise the sales tax by one-eighth of a cent to significantly expand high-quality full-day Pre-K for four-year-olds because we found that there was a gap of 5,700 four-year-olds in San Antonio that were not getting high-quality full-day Pre-K. And Under the guidelines for offering pre-K in Texas, there were six categories that you had to be in as a child, as a four-year-old, to be able to avail yourself of pre-K. The top one being, it was income-based. So, you know, and we had to, to stick to those guidelines. We didn't have the resources to go beyond that. But what we did was that we built in a portion of the program, we subsidized, For families that made more than that, we heavily subsidized the cost so that a certain number of families could still participate that were middle class and upper middle class if they wanted to, and it was not just limited to people within a certain income. And the idea there was to reach broadly, more broadly, and appeal uh, to families that could say, okay, well, you know, my kid could be a part of this program as well. I also think that that's fundamentally why things like universal health care, universal pre-K, and other programs have an appeal because and Social Security for instance because people can see uh, you know their own ability to participate and that's powerful.
2: People are getting nervous about what's going to happen not just next year but over the next few months um, in terms of you know you're going back to Congress and um, Carol Lennig my colleague thinks that there's not going to be impeachment um, mm. what do you think? I think there will be,
0: actually. Um, I, think, I think there will be articles, articles of impeachment brought forward, and I would predict that there will be an impeachment vote. Uh, obviously, I could be wrong. It could be that it never happens. Um, but Jerry Nadler is moving forward on the Judiciary Committee with the investigation, and after bringing forward witnesses and doing that investigation, I think we'll come forward and present articles. Um, this is just me stepping away for a second. And just in terms of, like, the timing, I, I don't think you're going to be doing impeachment in October of 2020, right? Uh, so there's a, there's a window of time that you have to take this up. And I, I think that, you know, I would say by next spring, I, I would think that it happens. Again, I could be wrong. It could never happen. Um, but I think it will. Do you both think that's a smart thing to do? I do. I mean, I was, I was the first of the 2020 candidates after the Mueller report came out to call for impeachment, and I explained this in the Detroit debate, if folks remember, why I believe that both on substance and in po- on politics that Democrats should move forward with impeachment. I mean, the substance is there. There are those 10 instances of obstruction or attempted obstruction of justice on the politics of it. I think a lot of Democrats are caught up in the experience of 1998, but I think that that's the wrong thing to look toward. People realize that we have a more polarized Congress and electorate today. So what I said in Detroit was that what's going to happen if Democrats don't move forward in the House with impeachment is that in the fall of 2020, Trump is going to say, "Oh, look, you see, you see these folks that are always after me, that are constantly investigating me. They did an investigation here and they didn't, do, they didn't impeach me. They didn't do anything. And you know why? Because I didn't do anything wrong. Well, because That's it was all brutal. fake news. Yeah, it was right? all it fake is, news. Fake I didn't do anything wrong. And don't you think that they would have brought impeachment if they, they could prove it, if they had anything? And basically, you're going to end up giving him a clean bill of political health. And then conversely, if they do impeach him in the House, which they could and then it goes to the Senate, the worry has been among some Democrats that well, Mitch McConnell's just gonna kill it in the Senate and that's gonna give him a clean bill of health, but that's not the way that it would play out. The way that it would play out is that you'd impeach him there and say, look at this evidence. And then it would go to the Senate and of course they would kill it in the Senate. And then Democrats would argue, we tried to do the right thing. That the evidence in this neutral report showed we should do. But when it got over to the Senate, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and his friends in the Senate wouldn't do their job. They wouldn't do what is plainly in black and white that they should do. And that's going to be the difference. Are Democrats going to let him off the hook? Or is Mitch McConnell going to take the blame for letting him off the hook? And I also think that I mean, you know a, a corollary to that impeachment issue is that there is a cost to our democracy in allowing a president to abuse power without responding to it in a formal way, right? If you do that, you're undermining the democracy, not just now, but for the future. So let me take an example that's separate from the Russia stuff, the obstruction of justice stuff. I want to take this recent example of reports that the President has threatened um, support for Ukraine unless Ukraine basically dishes dirt on Joe Biden. That is an abuse of power. That is a clear abuse of power by the President of the United States. That act alone is an impeachable act. Okay. you're basically, you're threatening a foreign country and asking them to take out a political opponent to your benefit, and if they don't do that, then you're threatening U.S. government resources or it's going to affect U.S. foreign policy. That, to me, it's those kinds of abuses of power and, and others that you've got to address, and whether that's ultimately an impeachment charge, in an impeachment, in the articles of impeachment or not, I think part of what you see with Donald Trump is that he throws out, he does so many bad things, some of them big and some of them small, that he tries to overwhelm you with the badness, right, so that you basically become paralyzed and all of that stuff gets normalized. You become paralyzed and just don't do anything and you accept it and you, and, and then the entire society, because you've done nothing, in a way becomes complicit and part of it and we can't allow that to happen. We have to do something.
2: Cool. Julian, uh, how much do you feel the pressure of being the first Latino serious presidential candidate, and how does that affect what you do?
0: Well, I mean, I do think, you know, Bill Richardson um, okay. When he ran no. in '08 on the Democratic side no. with serious, and of course uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz when they ran on the Republican side, uh, you know, even though they had different opinions from me, um, but I, I do feel because of the the moment, the times, because the Latino community in many ways has been scapegoated, targeted, because of what we saw in El Paso a month ago, that that there's for many Latinos. You know, obviously, it's a diverse community, but there is a significance to my presence up there on the stage. And so every time we have one of these debates, I remember that uh, what it would mean for me when I was able to watch in a movie or in some other setting somebody that looked like me uh, in that on that stage. And what I hope, in addition to that I get to serve as president of the United States and be a president for everybody, because you have to represent everybody. But one of the things I hope is that there are a lot of uh, little Latina girls and Latino boys that are watching and say, oh, look, you know, I can do that, too. I can do that, too.
2: When Barack Obama was elected, the Onion ran a famous headline, uh, black man given nation's worst job. Because of the reset, you know the horrible yeah. economic situation. <laughs> is that going to happen to the next uh, Democratic president?
0: I hope not. I hope not. Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be tough this time because this guy is just messing a whole bunch of things up that we're going to have to clean up. Um, but there's also this earlier this week. Uh, or last week, right, there was a poll that said 60% of Americans believe that a recession is likely in 2020. That's disturbing. And all all of us hope that that does not happen. Um, But one of the reasons that I think we need a change in leadership is because certainly if we allow this guy to continue beyond 2020, it will happen because you can't put somebody like Donald Trump in the Oval Office and not expect that he's gonna wreck your economy at some point, because he will. Uh, and so I, I hope that's not the case.
2: The subtitle of your book is Waking Up from the American Dream. You're sort of there now. Uh, mm-hmm. You're at one or two percent in the polls, but there's still a long way to go. Um, but I thought, you know, you have this riff about the dream, I guess, of January 20th, uh, oh, yeah. 2021. Yeah. And I just love the way you say the last word. So why don't we end it with that uh, story? Yeah, mm-hmm. no, you know, out there <laughs> on the
0: campaign trip, I always tell people that uh, yeah, I say, oh, look, you know, a few weeks ago, which somebody asked me, like, what's the first thing that you would do if you're elected president? And I told them that the first thing I would do Uh, as president is that I would sign an executive order recommitting the United States to the Paris Climate Accord so that we send a signal that we're going to lead again on climate change. But I always tell people my favorite part of the day would actually come a little bit earlier when it's traditional for the new president to usher out the outgoing president. And... uh, that I can imagine being there with my wife, Erica, and our daughter, Karina, who's 10, and our son, Christian, who's four. Y'all know that scene on the White House lawn, right? Getting ready to say goodbye to Donald Trump and Melania Trump. and The helicopter will be there, ready with the door open for them to walk in. And that they'll be ready to go off to Mar-a-Lago or, like, New York or somewhere. Yeah. And that right before he leaves, right right before he walks away, I'm going to tell him, adios. (laughs) That's my adios Trump story. Thank you all for having us. Thanks a lot, y'all. Thank you for having us. Thank you all.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. More episodes will be coming out shortly. In the meantime, do check out our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splainers. You can find those and Live from Cap Times Idea Fest at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon.